Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. Joe Wicks is the biggest fitness influencer in the world. Others may have more followers or have made more money, but no one has crossed over into the mainstream like the body coach. After all, name another social media star who's been able to get your parents and your kids moving more and eating better. Hey Joe, how are you doing? It's so good to see you, mate. Why are you trying to copy my hair, dude? I'm not the only one. (laughs) No, it looks good, mate. You're wearing it well. How are you, alright? Both going a bit gray as well, aren't we? Do you know, that, I like that happen? Uh, people always say you should diet. I'm not, in, I'm nah. not into that, mate. No, that just beard. for men, exactly. Yeah, let's do it, right. God, you've got three cameras, buddy. Oh, you're a proper team, aren't you? You're taking it seriously. Joe's is a remarkable story because while millions of people feel like they know him, not many know about some of the many challenges he's had to overcome, including growing up in a council estate with parents battling addiction and mental health issues, to build the career in life he loves so much. So how's he done it? And what comes next? That's what I want to find out. The last time I spoke to you, I think, was, was 2018, right? I mean, so much has happened since then. But 2018 I think, was I think, about, yeah. yeah. I think it was for, for the for men's fitness feature we did. And I just kind of look back at like what you've done through there, and obviously we could speak about it for a week, but I think the two things that jumped out for me that I don't think either of us would have anticipated at the time was the MBE and you playing Glastonbury, right? What was the more surreal of those two moments? Well, they're both pretty like mad moments and you know, the, the MBE was such a surprise because it was never like my intention to, to get an award like that. Really what I was just doing was like just getting people moving, trying to like, you know, help people through that difficult time. And so when I got this email from like, I don't know, the, um, not the Queen, but uh, people saying, yeah. oh, you know, you've, you've been nominated for an MBE, do you want to accept you? Because you can say no, some right. people turn it down apparently. Like, oh, that'd be amazing. And, you know, I went to Windsor Castle with my brother Nicky, um, and Princess Anne gave me the award. And as as we got closer and closer to the to the to the queue, like to the end of the line, we feel the emotion build up because it was a very emotional thing. Like me and Nicky, sure. you know, we were, you know, we, were, we we grew up on a council estate, and um, we were always the kids. We were both, you know, the naughty kids in a rough house where people, like, you know, they're wrong ones, and you had this this vision of what we we're going to be. So when we had that moment, we were like, you know what? We actually broke the mold. We've, we've achieved something, and it's a wonderful thing. So we we always say it's half of our. I've got half, and he's got the other half. Of the oh, really? That's yeah. so sweet to split, split with that. him. We ain't angle grinded it or anything. But... <laughs> Has there been any other like real moments where you've gone, "This is so surreal. I can't quite believe this is happening." Um, another really mad moment was when I broke the world record in in London Hyde Park, because you know, if you think seven years before, I was a boot camp trainer in Richmond, and I struggled to get one or two people down there. You know, I think it was in the space of six or seven years, um, and I had four thousand people in Hyde Park you know, on a weeknight <laughs> doing a workout. So yeah. it's that thing of like, you know, I believe in like if you build it and you really are passionate and you keep turning up, things grow. You know, and that's really what happened with with Instagram, with YouTube, with with my boot camp in the early days. If you don't keep turning up and you just give up and you you know you just say it didn't work, you know, you're never going to achieve what you want. So I just have this really simple mentality of keep showing up, keep coming back. 
and just and work, you know, work towards what you want and it will, it will come good eventually. If I started today on Instagram with the same idea, the same energy for exercise and food, I would have nowhere near the same success because I was at the right place at the right time right. with technology and social media. It's just so saturated now. It's so much harder to be, to be, to stand out and have, have a voice when there's just loads of people trying to do the same thing. You've obviously had enormous success um, since P with Joe, which we'll talk about, but this, you know, everyone sees you having this you know, amazing life, the amazing holidays you have, great family, all of this stuff. But obviously there's a downside with success, right? There's the press intrusion, there's people stopping you in the street. How do you deal with that, specifically with the kind of the press intrusion into your life? Is that something that, because you didn't sign up for that, right? It's not like you've gone on Love Island and suddenly got a massive following. Yeah, it's weird. It's, I mean, I've never really felt like I'm in the celebrity world. You know, obviously, obviously like, I do soccer and I've done a few bits of my but I'm not just on TV for the sake of it. If I'm on TV, like, I want to be doing a documentary. I want to be doing a, you know, a schools tour. I want to be talking about what I'm passionate about. So I've always kind of, um, <laughs> I've always kind of like, I've not really seen myself as a celebrity in that world. But of course, like with P with Joe, it blew everything up. So now when I'm out, families and kids recognise me a lot more. Mm -hmm. The only time it was ever a bit weird was when the paparazzi were hanging outside the house. So during lockdown, in the first few days, it was all booting off and they had right. paparazzi outside the house. Okay. And I was like going for a walk with Indy and stuff and they were taking photos and I thought, that's a bit weird. And obviously I've moved now, but again, it was, one, it was one moment, like a week of my life. I'm not a celebrity who is like followed around all the time. I have a really simple life. I live with my wife and kids. I'm in this little kind of bubble. And you know, I still sort of do the same things. That, you know, I still do normal things that anyone else would do. In terms of your childhood, you've obviously spoken a lot about it. But looking at your kids now, they're going to have a very different upbringing to you, right? Where they can essentially have all the opportunities, financially secure, all the other trappings that come with the success that you've earned. How conscious are you that they're going to have a very different upbringing? And, and how much are you aware of trying to kind of protect them from maybe not having the hunger or not having the ambition that you had? Yeah, it's a tough one. I always think about it because like, I'm a grafter, like a proper grafter. Me and Nikki, my brother and my little brother, George, you know, we... When you grow up in a council state, like working class, and you, and you, and you do want to create a different life for yourself, you've just got like a, a hunger to kind of create a different, a different path, you know. So yeah, I've worked really hard, and I think my kids have got a very different life, but I still teach them the importance of, you know, being thankful and grateful for what we have, and, you know, understanding you've got to work hard in life, you know, you're not just going to get everything given to you. Role modelling is so important, so if they see me role modelling, you know, with exercise and with cooking, I'm, I like to think they also see me with my career, my, my business and what I've achieved, that maybe that's also going to inspire them at some point. But again, there's no pressure for them to like be entrepreneurs and launch companies. They can do whatever they want, you know, when they're ready, really. How much has fatherhood changed you? Because from my personal experience, it was just a change that I just, I didn't even comprehend how much it was going to change my outlook in life. You can't, I, I couldn't get a sense until it was there. Was it the same for you? Well, I've got three kids and you might think I'm mad, <laughs> but we actually want like six kids. It seems <laughs> ridiculous, right? You think that's a big number. But uh, the reason I love, the, I, I meet families when I do these tours and I do the P with Joe tours and I see like kids, you know, five kids, six kids, and I just love the energy and the, and the kind of, just the culture of that family, like all into fitness, all into exercise. So I really love the idea of having a big family, but you know, it changed everything. It changed your perspective on time, on like how hard I really want to work. Like, am I willing to sacrifice, you know, everything to just work and have a career and be more successful? Or do I really want to slow down and be with the family and kids? Uh -huh. And I, I've always felt like I've got a good balance because I don't just do it. I'm not like filming TV shows. Ever. I could do a lot more TV, a lot more kind of traveling, but I actually think, you know what? I love social media and love doing digital because I can be at home with them and be present and be more present as a father. But yeah, you know, they stress me out. Don't get me wrong. That's why I still exercise every day. In terms of you bringing up your kids, you know, as I said, very different upbringing to you. What 
are the main kind of parenting lessons you've taken away from your own childhood with your, I guess what's been the main lesson you've taken from your mum and from your dad? Oh, that's a big question. Well, my dad obviously was struggling when I was growing up. My dad's been a drug, a drug addict from a very young age, so he was struggling with heroin addiction. So it's very hard for him to be present and parent, you know, emotionally when he was so, you know, he's in such a bad way with that. So that was obviously one thing. And my mum had her own issue. She obviously had um, extreme OCD, like cleaning extreme every day. Mm-hmm eating disorders, anxiety, um, you know, it was tough. So I think it was a lot of instability as a kid. And, and one thing I really want to create now as a parent is stability. I know that, you know, as long as I love my children, create a stable home life where they feel safe and secure, you can pretty much get through anything. Okay. Um, but as a child that grew up in that very chaotic home life, you know, it was a lot of shouting. You know, I always remember there was holes in the doors because my mum and dad used to fight and they'd be, you know, be punching through the walls and stuff. So I've got these visions of like, screaming and shouting and a lot of kind of, you know, aggression, not towards me, but definitely between each other. And so now as a parent, I find myself wanting to scream and shout okay. instantly, like default setting, right. scream and shout. You can't deal with your emotions right now. Slam the door, walk out. But I'm learning and I'm trying to really think differently and challenge that a little bit and trying to be more patient and know that I can react differently. And that default setting that I've got, I'm actually working through it and I'm learning ways of you know, basically, just take a breath, okay. have a moment, and react differently, and, and react with compassion, and understand that your child is having a tantrum. It's their brain. It's that they're just, you know, they haven't developed their rational thinking yet. So, I think that's the biggest challenge for me, is being a calm, patient parent. Because when I, when I really stay calm and fight against that urge to shout and scream and slam the door, it takes a lot of energy out of me. You know, right. But I'm, I'm honest about that. I, I share that because people need to know. You know, it's okay. Sometimes you lose it and you, you shout and you feel terrible for it, but I think every human being has a breaking point and it's just trying to sort of work around ways that you can avoid those sort of moments where you lose it a little bit, you know? You're incredibly forgiving, right? Because I think a lot of people who'd had that experience maybe would harbour a little bit of resentment or frustration, but from every time I've spoken to you, from everything I've read, seen, watched about you, I never get a sense of that. Is, is that true or is that something you've, you've buried away? No, you have to be. Like, what's the point? What's the point of hanging on to like negative energy and resentment and anger like for me like you know I have to accept my past and I love my mum and dad I wouldn't change I truly wouldn't change a thing like everything we've gone through together has made us into the people we are you know we've done a documentary on mental health and we all sort of were quite open and honest about how that was as a family but you know I just live in the moment I try not to live too far in the past Uh I try not to look in the future and think right what can I do today to make me feel good and I really value family and friends like you know, for all the success in the world, if you aren't connected to your friends and family, it can, it can feel lonely, right? Totally. So I, I'm the glue. I pull all my family in, I pull all my friends in. We, we come together because I organise parties. I'll take us skiing. I'll take us to, you know, the beach for the day. I try to do those things all the time because I think it's really important to be, you know, close as a family. Um, and as I said, I've got a great relationship with my mum and dad now. Like Nick, mm-hmm. Nicky and my older brother and my little brother George, we're all really close and you can't hang on to things because if you do... You spend your whole life angry and resentful. Yeah. And it holds you back. I think for me, it definitely motivated me to be like a, a more, you know, a more ambitious, you know, hardworking person that could create a different life for myself and my kids, really. Would you say you are addicted to your phone? Because I know you've spoken about it before, about the, the hours per day you spend on there. Has that been an issue with, with your family life, trying to balance out the need to communicate people but also take care of the people closest to you i'm definitely much better than i was when i filmed that documentary for bbc one like i was right in the middle of it i was on there like nine ten hours a day replying to people because it was all about mental health and i was getting more and more people reach out 
Um, it was quite overwhelming, but I've kind of, I've managed to get a better balance now. I'm still doing probably five or six hours a day on my phone. Really? On mainly Instagram. Because for me, like, that's where I get the instant, like, it's a dopamine hit, but I can do voice notes. I can send videos back. It's really quick. It's really, like, instant for me. So I definitely think my biggest issue is with Instagram. I'm not, I'm not, like, doing TikTok and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, I am getting better at it because I'm having to leave my phone. I, I need the phone, like, now, for example. The phone's in the car, right? Uh-huh. When it's physically off, I'm not thinking about it. I don't need it. But when, I, when it's on my person, I've got the kids with me. I find myself filming, taking photos, like grabbing content. And I don't want to live my life through a, a lens of content, you know, digital content. And so for me, I have to physically take the right. phone away. And therefore, I can turn it off on a Friday and leave it off all weekend. It's okay. not like I, I don't need it like a drug. But when I've got it on me, I'm a nightmare. I can't stop picking it up just from habit and I'm just all over it. Because you, you've spoken then just about getting that, that buzz of you know, replying to somebody or, or helping their day. But what I'm interested in, Joe, is what is the main driver of, of this need or this compulsion you have to help people? Is it that you're getting a buzz out of it and it's entirely positive and it's, it's all great? Or is there a sense that I need to do this because if I don't, I, I'll feel guilty. I need to save this person. I need to help them. Can you kind of, where's the needle on your real primary motivation for it? Well, it's not like, um, I don't feel like pressure. I don't feel responsibility, but I just feel like what a great opportunity to like, you know, use my energy for exercise and my love for fitness to really help people. And at the ultimate end of the day, there, there might be a time where I run out of steam and go, I've given as much as I can, I'm uh -huh. done. But at the moment, it's just, it's just what I love doing. I don't really think about it. I just sort of wake up every day, I share a recipe, share a workout, do some stories and you know, I think But you truly, don't feel I've, guilty you don't feel guilty if you don't get, get back to messages for 24, 48 hours. No, nah, I'm much better now. I, I, I flag ones that are really emotional. I, I, sometimes I just need to be like in the right mindset to reply to them because they're quite I'll get people sending messages that you wouldn't wouldn't believe, like really hardcore like emotional stuff. So I have to be in the right frame of mind and I, I do reply to them. Because there's a big difference though between someone going, Joe, I can't thank you enough, you've got me moving, you've done all this positive stuff. What about when you get a message where I don't know, someone could be suicidal. Like that is an enormous amount of pressure to be on your shoulders. In that moment, you don't know what that person's thinking and you're not, qual you're not qualified. No, not You'd qualified. be the first to admit that you're not in the position to do it. Like how do you deal with people in that situation? How much of a, a toll is that on your mental health? Well, I've had, I've had people come up to me, like it happened a lot at Coachella, not Coachella. I've had people come up to me actually a lot recently, even, even in Glastonbury, you know, people had a few drinks and they're like, come up to me and tell, you know, I just want to thank you for saving my life. And I, I say to them, do you really mean that? Like, are you just saying that because I helped you get through the lockdown with your kids? And they say, no, you saved my life. And they, and they open up and they say, you know, you, I was in a dark place and I, my kids have got autism and I couldn't deal with life and I was overwhelmed. And I'm like, it's really emotional to hear that. And I always have a moment with them people and I always say, thanks for sharing that with me because, like, you know, it really does energise me. And I think, you know, the truth is, one, I'm not, I don't think I'm very spiritual, but one thing I believe is that we are connected and we're connected through love and through serving other people, right? And I didn't need to like get to 60 years old to realise that. <laughs> I realised that from a really young age. I've always been a carer, so obviously my, my mum and dad were struggling. I felt like I was caring for them. I felt like I was looking after my little brother. I've, I've just been a natural carer like, since such a young age. And I think when you have that in your, in your, in your nature, it feels very natural to help and, and just be driven by the, you know, the actual connection and helping so the, basically the more people I help the happier I feel. Have you ever had conversations with government or politicians about taking some sort of like genuine role in, in, in helping people in this regard? Yeah I was invited to um, 10 Downing Street and we met Boris Johnson and they wanted, to me, they wanted me to be like the, um, the face of this sort of campaign this sort of NHS like initiative but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel right for me because I didn't feel like it's going to have much impact, you know, and I really want to, I want to do things in my time and energy that actually mean something. So for me, like, obviously, I love 
doing the workouts. I love visiting schools. I love doing the YouTube stuff and really. So what was the campaign if I can, I can jump in? And like, why um, did you feel like it, it didn't have, what did it not have the resource behind, not have the right people? How, how wasn't it going to play out the way you thought it could have done? I just didn't feel like, I don't know, I didn't feel passionate about it. And I just thought it was more like, it felt like just a PR thing. Like just shake hands to Joe and have a photo with him sort of thing. Right. It didn't feel genuine. It didn't feel authentic. And I was like, you know what? I actually just want to stick to what I'm good at, which is actually like fitness content and recipes that get people cooking and so what do they want you to do was there was there any kind of scheme behind you know in, in i didn't the... get that far in the conversation because right. i just i didn't i didn't feel like it was my thing you know and i you know i went there and i met met boris johnson it was i got given an award actually it was like you know for my commitment to um the, the nation's health and fitness but i don't know it just felt like um a Lip campaign service. a campaign but maybe wasn't gonna have an impact and what i've what i've heard from speaking to people who do a lot of campaign work sometimes you can be working with one politician for like a year or two and suddenly they're out of office then someone else comes in you've got to start a whole thing right. again so it's not that i don't think it could have an impact but i just feel like for me it would be very disheartening if i was working so hard on trying to get something through the door you know over the line and it just kept getting stopped and squished you know squashed and pushed back and so <laughs> i just thought you know what i'm just going to stick to digital content and, and and doing what i love with um p with joe obviously that's had a, a huge amount of impact and i think it blew even your expectations out of the water, right, in terms of the number of people that, that, that took it. And you went from being incredibly well-known in the fitness industry and it was crossover. You were, eff you were unavoidable for the first few weeks of, of lockdown. What was really interesting, none of those videos did you mention COVID, lockdown, none of your messaging, none of your communication focused on anything that was actually going on. It was all just did you positive. That? Yeah. Did you really? And you, you never, ever brought any of that up. How conscious was it that you, before you did that first live video, you're like, I'm not gonna mention anything negative, I'm not gonna mention lockdown, I'm not gonna mention people stuck in, I'm just gonna focus on the positives, because I think that was deliberate. Yeah, it was a massive decision, because I, you know, I was anxious, people were upset, you know, we were like unsure what was going on. I mean, don't forget, I, in my head, I thought it was gonna be like a week or two, yeah, or three yeah, weeks, yeah. or a circuit break or something. But I just thought, you know what, I'm not gonna come on here and talk about COVID and lockdown, I'm gonna just talk about why we're doing this, why we're exercising, make it fun, Spot the difference, you know, I had the obviously fans <laughs> dress Fridays and I think that was an amazing thing because people then could relax, they could just forget about that for a moment, have 30 minutes of like energetic exercise which kind of like cleared their mind of that and that anxiety and re released that from their bodies and that was really what it was all about. It wasn't about trying to help people, it wasn't about trying to help people lose weight, yeah. I was trying to help people feel good and relax and just not be stressed out. You've spoken about how when PE with Joe ended, you, were, you felt like it was a big anti-climax. Your sense of purpose had suddenly gone away. How difficult a time was that? Because you know, lockdown was kind of still going on, but we didn't know what kind of world we were going to emerge back into. How difficult was it? Well, yeah, they call it like the old gold medal syndrome. You know, that right. win like in a massive moment and they win a gold medal, they complete the Tour de France and it's like, you have that like, what next? What am I doing now? And that, I, I definitely felt a little bit kind of yeah, I felt flat. I wouldn't say I was depressed, but I was like, it all happened. And when it was over, I was like, am I still valuable? Am I still useful? Am I still help? That comes back to my thing about like, you know, having like connections to other people and feeling like I am helping people. But I yeah. soon, I soon like reconnected with my audience and I got back into it. And although I wasn't, even now, like, I'm not having tens of millions of people a month exercise, but I still get a few million views on YouTube and I've got, you know, a few hundred thousand people using the apps. It still makes me feel good. Um, but yeah, like, I just think it was because it was such a big moment and it was such a whirlwind that when it was over, I was like, oh, you know, like, what am I going to do now? Where can I go from that? It's like, there's nothing's going to ever... Were you worried that you'd peaked, if that makes sense? Like, the thing that you kind of always wanted and to have a massive, tangible impact on kids' health. Were you worried, like, oh, my God, I'm 34, 35. I've already, I've already done what I was going to do. Oh, yeah, yeah, and the rest. <laughs> I'm 38 this year. But no, I definitely... Yeah, it was a peak, and I think it will always be a peak. Like, it'll always be my career-defining moment. Nothing will eclipse that. Nothing I achieve 
will ever have as much impact as getting a whole nation through a global pandemic. Like, it is, and I'm fine with that. A lot of people from politicians, you know, across the board were calling you a hero. What you're doing was heroic. Did you feel like a hero? I didn't, no, and I, st I still think it weird. I find it weird when people say, oh, lockdown legend, like <laughs> me and Captain Tom, because obviously Captain Tom raised loads of money and I did my thing, but like, I don't know, I just, I, just, I just felt like I was doing good and I felt great, but I didn't think it was like, at the time, this momentous thing. But obviously when I look back now and I, I think about just how many people did it, like it, it, did, it did blow my mind. Like when I looked at the end of the, um, the lockdown, there was a hundred million views globally. So like, if you think about that, like it is, it is, mu it is mad to think that was done just from a camera in my living room, you know, on my own. When you've talked about struggles mentally afterwards, a lot of people were quite quick to criticise. What have you got to complain about? You know, beautiful wife, amazing kids, lovely house, money in the bank. Do you still think there's an issue when it comes to talking about mental health? Maybe specifically in this country, that if you're kind of at a certain level of fame or wealth, like you shouldn't really be affected by mental health issues. There can be that element of people associate that, you know, if you have external things that you, you're always internally happy. But I always say, you know, happiness is an inside job. Like yeah. you can wake up. I mean, we've got so many examples of amazing, talented, musicians and actors and amazing people that aren't happy, right? And you think, why aren't you happy? You've got everything. Because it comes down to like, how are you feeling inside? And I just think, you know, you've got to always think about that. Whoever you, if you're following someone on social media and you, and you think, oh, they don't know, they don't really know what it's like, you know, he might have lived in a council flat once, but now he's got a big house. But you can always connect and relate back to that life and that Because that little that boy's feeling. still inside, right? Yeah. You still remember that. And that experience for me, like I was ADHD, not diagnosed, but I was ADHD, I was anxious, I had so much energy, and if I didn't have sport and PE and I was locked in my house for 18 weeks, I would have really struggled mentally, been really, really in a bad way. And so that was me, when I did PE with Joe and I'm going live, I'm thinking, imagine if that was me now, like how great this workout would be for me and how much it's probably helping some kids, especially those with, um, you know, like I said, with autism or mental health or learning difficulties, because they have such structure and routine that uh -huh. they need something to anchor themselves to. And so it was a massive driving force in, in doing it every day. So many people will cite social media as one of the main reasons that they're not as happy as they could be. And I think we're inevitably, because of the algorithm or whatever, we're drawn into seeing lives that we don't live that look amazing. How, yeah. how conscious are you that some of your followers might be struggling on, on social media? And also, Joey, even though you know everything there is to know about social media, are you someone who's still affected by it when you see posts? Definitely, like social media like, is, is the most amazing thing, but also it's very detrimental to someone's mental health. I think the more time you spend on your phone, the more likely you are to be anxious, to not feel gratitude, to feel yeah. jealous and envy and, and comparison of like everyone else's lives. So it is about trying to win back some time, you know, not having it in the morning when you first wake up, not having it just before bed. But if something really puts you down, like even if it was me, if, if, if I shared content that make you feel like you're not doing a good job as a parent or as someone in, in the fitness industry, like don't, Follow me, because I want right. to ever upset yeah. you. Know what I mean, people still do follow sometimes, and I think it is important to curate your followers and follow people that are going to really give you some inspiration and not make you feel, you know, shit about yourself. The um, other issue with social media is it's not only what you see that can make you feel bad; it's what you hear. And you've been subjected to some really quite nasty, in my opinion, comments and videos over the years. And I'm not going to go into any names because I don't want to give them the oxygen, to be honest. But how? much did it affect you when you are seeing posts or being tagged in things where you're being called out for your methods, holes picking apart, people are calling you stupid, calling you thick. How, how did that make you feel? I mean, there's definitely been times where like, you know, it'd really get you down, especially when I'm so driven and so purpose driven to help people. So I used to think, why are people trying to bring me down? And it would, you know, emotionally, like, of course it would affect me. I'd 
think about it before bed. I wake up in the morning and I just feel down. Like, I'm just like, this is, this is upsetting. But I've kind of learned in, in a way to acknowledge that and, and accept that it's there, but not like let it affect me as, as much as it used to. And I think, to be honest, the first and main criticism I used to have was always around the calorie counting thing. So I once right. said, you know, I don't believe that calorie counting is for everybody. I think it's an option and it, it can work, but I just believe that you've actually got to get people cooking. That's sure. the hardest thing. Get yeah, people yeah. cooking, get people moving. And so I've all, and I've never put the calories in, in my books. I don't have the calories listed on my recipes in my app. And I think that's a really um, simple way of just keeping it much more uncomplicated and just focus on the food, like really just focus on cooking. So that was kind of a bit of criticism and obviously around like, you know, was I just in it for the money and I'm just a blagger and certain things. But look, the truth is, once PE with Joe happened during lockdown, I would say every single person that ever mentioned or been rude or mean to me, it kind of just disappeared because they just realized, you know what? How can we attack him when I've, he's got my, my nephew fit, he's got my <laughs> mum, my nan exercising? Yeah. Like, I just give the geezer a break. But I'm, is there even a little bit of you, Joe, when you, you blazed a trail, right? You were the first to properly to do with Instagram what you've done and you've created this opportunity for people to follow in your wake with book deals, with plans, with all kinds of product placements. You're not a little bit pissed off that some of them have done that because they've been able to take the piss out of you? Everyone's just trying to earn a living, man. I just don't think about it. Don't, it's not that deep for me. Like, it's just not that deep, you know? It's obviously not nice when people are saying stuff, but it's not nice when the Daily Mail or The Sun or, you know, put an article about me or my kids or whatever. Like, it's not nice, but I don't sit there reading the comments and wind myself up. Right. What is the point? I mean, you end up on all these websites, tattle, you know, all these like parenting things, slagging you off, saying, oh, he's doing this, this. So I, I know you're not always going to be everyone's cup of tea. You know what I mean, yeah. you're not always going to share a message that everyone wants to hear. But again, I only focus on the positive. You must have been approached over the years with a huge number of, of business opportunities, right? Supermarket offering you, what, two million quid to be the face of their, their ready meal range. You turn it down. Why did you turn it down and how quickly or how long did it take you to come to that decision that you weren't going to do it? Um, well, I was, yeah, I was quite open about that. I thought it'd be nice to share that because people often think you just take everything and you're grabbing it all and you just don't say no to anything. But truthfully, I've said no to so many things. And the reason I was, I was super excited about working in the supermarket because I thought I'd be doing like grains and, you know, pestos and granolas and, yeah. you know, components to help you cook. But then it was like, it was really, they presented me with this stuff. It was like ready meals, microwave dinners, um, food on the go it was all highly processed and i just said you know what no matter how much money you give me i will never stand on my social media and be proud to say hey guys go and check out my ready meals i wouldn't want my nanny eating them right. I wouldn't want my mum eating them and i wouldn't want my kids eating them and so i just said no and it was a really quick decision um, and obviously the gusto partnership we found after that which was really great and it was just about helping people cook and so sometimes you just got to follow your heart and don't don't, don't chase the money don't don't take the money because it could backfire on your whole reputation like my reputation, I honestly believe it. Imagine if I'd gone on social media and all the haters came out and said, have you seen Wixie's doing ready meals? <laughs> I'd be destroyed, I'd be slaughtered. Re reputation done. I well. also think that shows a profound confidence in your own ability. Say two million quid from a supermarket. A lot of people go, do you know what? It's not right, it doesn't align with my values, but that is a deposit for my kids. That is university pay for yeah, my kids. Yeah, of course. It, it, I think that's where so many people go, do you know what? Yeah, I, it's not right, but I can't turn it down. It really, but, look, the truth is, yeah, it was two million pound guaranteed for two years, like guaranteed minimum, but really, it really would have been, if it went well, five, 10 million pounds over right, a few wow. years, because it would have been high volume, you know, loads of things like sandwiches, microbe dinners, you're banging out a million a week, a week or whatever, like it's a lot of yeah. revenue, right? And so the number's way bigger, but I don't ever think, oh, I wish I took that deal, or I wish I had, had that money in the bank, because 
I've got a long-term vision for what I'm doing. I, like, I've got a vision for a legacy. Like, I don't want to just be this trainer in this moment in time that had a great career and you know got a nice house for me and my kids, and then I retire and it's all over. Like, I actually want the Body Coach brand to be a trusted, you know, brand that people go to in years to come. So that when you or your mum or dad are feeling unwell, unhappy, or unhealthy, you go, oh, do you know, what? I'm going to do the Body Coach plan, or I'm going to do an event with Joe, or I'm going to do the recipes, or I'm going to get a book, and I believe that. So much of, of the fitness conversation, the health and wellbeing conversation now is revolving around drugs, right? We've seen just the proliferation of anti-obesity drugs, which people are jumping on the next bandwagon as a quick fix. How, you know, it's the complete polar opposite of the fitness spectrum to you, right? Lifestyle interventions versus pharmaceutical interventions. How worried or concerned are you by people being attracted to this promise of instant weight loss or very rapid weight loss because of drugs? I don't know what these drugs do, but I keep seeing articles that all these companies are investing in this um, obesity drug. And I, I can't really comment on the drug itself, but I don't think it really helps the issue of like the psychological issue around binge eating, overeating, you know, mental health issues. And so it isn't a cure. It, it might help, I don't know, it might have some use, but ultimately, I think it's a decision to just get more revenue in the business, right? And I, you're never, you are never, and you can keep this on camera, because you are never going to see me, even if I was paid 10 million quid a year to promote a drug, you're never going to see me promote an obesity drug. You can, you can believe that, or you can, uh, you know, get someone to come and offer it to me. It's on film now. And I'll film it, and I'll say, <laughs> oh, you will never see the body coach selling obesity and fat loss pills and is that it's not is, the answer is that because you think the underlying reasons for obesity aren't to do with necessarily food there's far more psychological factors at play that can lead to someone gaining weight of course i mean look any kind of i see those ads sometimes for like these what you think you swallow these things and it makes your stomach fill up like it's like it fills it up like you think you're full but that doesn't address the issue of why are you binge eating? Why are you not cooking healthy food? Why are you relying on takeaways every day? Like you have to address those behaviour issues and those the mental health, so the the mental barriers to, to to nutrition and exercise. And I think, you know, like I said, I would much rather get people moving and exercising and cooking a meal. I'd feel like that's a win than selling them a pill that makes them feel that like they're full up. You've got the MBE. What about Sir Joe Wicks? How does that sound? Oh, I don't know if that'll ever happen. I think you've got to do a lot more to get a sir. But what I will say is, like, I hope we get to meet in ten years' time. And, and we can watch this back together and see like, you know, did he really mean it? Or did he sell out? Or did he actually like, did he take the, uh, the pharmaceutical dollar, <laughs> well, the Pfizer dollar? I've seen, I've seen your career over the last 10 years, Joe, when you started out. And you know, I, I knew Nikki before I knew you. So I was aware of you and what you were doing. And I've seen what's happened over the last 10 years. And all I can say is I'm massively excited to see what the next 10 has because you made such a difference. And I think it's only going to continue. Thank you, mate. It's been great talking. And I, um, Give me a hug. I wish you the best of luck. <laughs>